Hi, this is Jane Patton. And I'm Trisha Barday. And we want to welcome you to the podcast True North, a ministry of North Road Community Church. We are so excited to use this space to continue the conversations that happen when we hear a Sunday morning sermon or are reading the Bible or just in community with one another. So thank you for spending the next few moments with us, listening to our guests and joining us as we continue our walk north. And be sure to share us with your friends. Let's get started. Welcome back to True North. We are so excited to have you here. I am super excited to have our, our guest uh, that is on here today. So do you know who he is? Pastor Dave Martin. He's on staff here at North Road. Yep, super fan of him because if you're not familiar, he is my dad. Um, and so we were talking even before we started taping here. Dad had had said, he goes, he's nervous about this. I said, and, and Trisha was like, why are you nervous? We're just having a conversation among family members. That's mm-hmm. all we're doing. Yeah. That's all we're doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you aren't familiar with uh, my dad's role, his name is Dave Martin, and he is our discipleship pastor out here at North Road Church. Um, and so he leads all the courses and all the classes over in the Missouri Baptist Building, helping men and women go deeper in their walk with Christ. And I don't think that everybody necessarily just understands what it what happens when you come to saving faith, that there is... There's it's that's not a a performance based um, new journey, but there are things that we can do that will develop our intimacy with the Lord to grow in what it is to have a relationship with Him, and we call that discipleship. When you are teaching other people how to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, and so that's that's really what you do here, do here, Dad. Isn't that would you say that's what you do? Yep, that's what I do. That's what you do. <laughs> uh, it was funny Start we were walking up the stairs, and he goes, "Well, I led another person to the to Christ last night," and I'm like, "Well, it doesn't surprise me. That's just no. that's just what he does." So, one of the things that you do with discipleship, though, um, is you help people understand what it is to become what you call a healthy disciple. What what does that mean to become a healthy disciple? Well, just before I actually answer that, let me kind of back up a moment to say that when Jesus gives us the Great Commission, it's to go and make disciples. It's not to go and make converts. And mm. so even the gentleman that came to faith last night, immediately after he came to faith, I had him share it with your mother. I get him on the phone. So I want him to know that it's normal to talk about this relationship. So he does, and it was great. And then following that, I say, now here's some ways to grow. And so... This is kind of like a brand new baby. You don't just say, well, we got the, all the work's done. Uh, no, the work's just begun. And so you want to help to understand about Jesus saying, making disciples, which is learners, to grow. How do we grow? And so uh, the material that I go over is designed to help them to That grow. makes sense. One of the topics that you talk about are three facts about spiritual maturity. And I am so curious about what your three facts are. What, what are those? Well, you're talking about facets or ways to grow, there's, there's habits that we need to develop. And scriptures, even in Colossians 3, 9, 10, it says, do you, put, you have put off the old self with its habits and have put on the new self, which God has constantly renewing in his own image in order to bring you into full knowledge of himself. <laughs> Bless, so, you. bless you. Sorry. <laughs> that was extra. Tis that the was, season. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, uh, but the point is that becoming a healthy believer, a healthy disciple there are some certain things that are like essential. And mm. one is, uh, it's like four habits, new habits, actually. It's spending time in God's word, right? Getting into the word, let the word get into you. And when I'm just starting with a brand new believer, I typically take them to the gospel of John. Because if anybody ever watched a movie where there's like like the Matrix, there's a 360-degree angle on the, the main character. And, uh, well, each gospel is a 
point of view on Jesus' life. And the Gospel of John focuses on being God, mm. on, on God. And I want them to get to know who Jesus is in them by his Spirit. So you got to get into the Word, let the Word get into you. In prayer, what prayer is, prayer is not uh, rote prayer, just saying words over and over again. It's a conversation you're having with God. You speak to him in words. He speaks to you in his Word. So there's that interchange. And then uh, giving is a natural part. It's part of our spiritual DNA. We just want to be given giving. And community, being in community with each other. That God didn't design us to be lone rangers. We need to be connected to each other. So I pointed this out to the young man last night, and I would point that out to anybody who's trying to get started on this journey. You just mentioned that prayer is not something that is rote, that no. I think that's very easy. We teach our children uh, very simple prayers. I mean, when I was growing up, the, mm -hmm. the, we would pray, um, Jesus, thank you for this food, mm -hmm. and uh, please help Daddy with his sermon. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It was literally <laughs> like we were trained to thank God for his food and please help Daddy with his sermon. That's right. um, but, but prayer is more than that. You talk about in your discipleship classes that prayer has a very practical application in our lives. So so how how is prayer applicable? Well, if you... Talk about prayer as a conversation, then like you and me, or we here today, we're talking about topics. So if something's of concern to you as my daughter, you would say, Dad, I want to talk to you about something. And so we would talk about it, right? And there would just be this give and take, and I would listen to you, and ideally you'd listen to me. Ideally, sometimes. <laughs> so uh, Parents now, out there. Yeah, so, right, right, right. You can have hope. Yeah, so... But the point is, is that in praying, you're asking God. Uh, so prayer is, of course, some say it's the ACT acronym. You know, it's, it's prayer involves asking and uh, confession and thanksgiving and supplication. There's different aspects people use about prayer. But my point is, is that then you're hearing from me in a conversation, but how does God speak to us? Well, primarily through his word. But he may use a song. He may use a sermon. He may use a friend. He has a lot of different ways in which to communicate to us. And something is the right word at the right time for the right need, and he's speaking to you. I, I We've heard that. We've seen that before. Like, you you can go to church and then feel like you leave the sermon, and you're always asking, like, did he read our mail? You know no, what I mean? How sure. did the pastor know? Well, the pastor didn't know. The Holy Spirit does know. Mm -hmm. um, which leads me kind of to my next question. You talk about how God primarily speaks through his word. How do you how you you have like five ways that you list on how to improve our hearing from the Lord? What would be right. those five ways, very top line ways that we can improve Ooh, our hearing? Yeah. I want to know that. Yeah, this is a really really important. What I I tell individuals is that you'll forget ninety five percent of what you hear after seventy two hours. So no matter no matter how great the sermon may be. And you'll walk out saying, oh, that'll change my life. Within 72 hours, you'll forget 95% of what you heard. Not because you're not committed. It's just so much other white noise. There's so many other things coming at us. And so what uh, what we want to do, and I try to help folks to understand that you can, uh, you can improve your hearing, first of all, just by being ready and eager to hear when you come to worship, come with an attitude that you, you want to hear. Jesus oh, even said, it everyone is. should be, uh, Jesus says, uh, let, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear and everyone should be quick to listen. Okay, mm. so we're, we're coming with an attitude that God's going to say something, as opposed to folded arms mentally or physically and say, come on, preacher, move me. You know, no, if you're wanting to hear from God, then God likely will say something to you if you're open to it. Second is addressing any attitudes that you might have that hinder hearing. Uh, Jesus says, be careful how you listen. 
so again, it's an ad, it's attitudinal. He also said it another place. He said in Mark four twenty four, take heed what you hear. So not only how we hear, but what we hear, things that are coming in through the ear gate. Uh, then there's a need to confess any sin in my life. I'm coming in. I need to ask God to forgive me if I had a blowout with someone else or an attitude with my with Terry, my wife. So get rid of everything. Is you know, confess my sin to Him. And fourth is even taking notes. I encourage folks to jot things down because. When you write them down, there is uh, it, it's something to hear it, but when you write it, it has a way of reinforcing that truth in you. In fact, the pastor may be saying something, and you're chasing a rabbit in your head. You're something that mm. triggered a thought, and now you're over here, and, and you've kind of left the discussion for a few moments, but they're over here, God's speaking to you, well, and it's, it's impactful. Well, you ought to jot that down because it was impactful, and you'll better remember it, remember it better if you have noted it. It's kind of like taking a fishing net when you go fishing. You get the you get the, the trout or whatever up to the, the goat, but the net helped bring it in. A lot mm. of times we lose it. You know, we lose the fish if we just get it to the boat. You capture it. Taking notes is kind of like a fish net. You're catching the fish, and then it's acting on what you hear. I mean, once God shows, God never just tells us something to for information purposes. It's to change our lives, mm. our behavior from the inside out. So it's not what you know. Jesus says, "What you do with what you know." If you know these things, He says, "Happy are you if you do them." So it's in the doing that we find the benefit in our lives. That's so good. Um, I'm I'm loving this discussion, and I want to touch on uh, five reasons for having a quiet time. Now, there's we all have dif- different seasons in our lives, and when um, I was a high school student and a college student, it seemed like it was so hard for me to get in the Word, and yet I had so much more time on my hands to do it you know, and now as I'm in different other seasons working or, you know, eventually having a family or whatever, there's not as much time. And, but, you know, in all the different seasons of our lives, why is having a quiet time so important? For me, carving out time, it's, it's not finding time. You'll never find time. The enemy will make sure of that. You have to carve out the time, just like you would make time to go to a doctor. You make time to see the teacher for a, um, a teacher-parent meeting. You make time with God. And so this came early in the early years of our marriage and ministry. Actually, I give credit where credit's due. Terry, my wife, had a quiet time before I did. I mean, she's far more spiritual than I am. You should be interviewing her. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> we uh, should have her on Yeah, I mean, so, but... <laughs> But I, I got up and I set my quiet time, my Bible and the devotional books I was going to read, whatever, in the kitchen. And to help me, I decided, you know, that I would do it early in the morning, which works for my schedule. It's kind of based on Mark one thirty five, where it says of Jesus, he rising up early, great while before day, he went out, departed to a solitary place, and there prayed. So that was kind of the driving force that Jesus does it. So I clearly need to do it. And uh, I would, I'd, I'd make spiced tea and. I'd have it in the kitchen under a height, a lamp in the, you know, over the stove, and I stood up. Now, the reason I stood up with hot tea was to stay awake so I didn't fall asleep. <laughs> Seriously. That's but so I'm, good. And my kids will remember growing up that that's where they'd find Dad standing in the kitchen and having this quiet time. But it, but a quiet time or devotional time or whatever you want to call it, I call it QT, not for a quick trip, but it's, yeah, it's my time to meet the Lord. I'd always find something in the New Testament I was reading or the Old Testament I have an everyday Bible now, so the whole year is broken down into 365 segments with a segment from the Old Testament and Psalms and Proverbs and part from the New and a devotional thought that goes with it. And and so I already know what I'm going to be reading for that day, and I have my pencil in hand. Now, why do I have my pencil in hand? I have my mechanical pencil in hand because I want if something strikes me, I want to note it. I like that. 
because it shows God I'm paying attention. I think it's showing me as much more than getting God, but I'm paying attention to something he hits me with, so I'll make a note off the side. So year, the next year when I come back to it, I'll remember it again, be reminded again about that. So it's important. So what I hear you saying, like the last thing we're talking about is being expectant to hear from God. And like, mm-hmm. even if you're in a sermon, you know, mm-hmm. and and God starts kind of highlighting something to you and you might check out of the sermon, like it's okay to write that thing down that maybe God is starting to speak to you Absolutely. in the middle of it and then check back in. And now you're saying, if I'm reading the word, be ready, be expectant, have a piece of paper and a pencil there because mm-hmm. if something, I love how you said, if something strikes me, mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to say it because that can be like, it's almost like lightning striking. All of a sudden it's like, this means something to me uh, in a way that I didn't expect for what, my situation. What is really interesting is that, so if you, this is not a plug, it is not a plug, but I so <laughs> believe in taking notes during messages that I created a sermon notes notebook and you can find it on Amazon. So if you just type in Jane Patton, J-A-Y-N-E, Patton, P-A-T-T-O-N, you will, there's three different design covers, but, and there's one for kids and there's one for adults, adult women, um, because it's got animal print and, you know, it's got to be fabulous. Yes, but it does. Anyway, <laughs> um, but I so believe this. I have been given, I believe from the Lord, more messages for when I go and I speak somewhere during worship. Not even during the sermon. All of a sudden, there will be something that we're singing. But the, you know, the Bible is very clear. It says that God inhabits the praises of His people. And I have literally been worshiping, and then all of a sudden, feel the Holy Spirit begin to minister to me. Whether it's through a scripture verse that He brings back to mind, or scripture that we're singing, because so much of our songs are focused on scripture and saying that back to the Lord. That I literally sit down and I just start writing out that message. So it's, but countless times. That's happened. And so I just feel I'm so, I'm such a believer that I made a book about it. You know mm. what I mean? To help equip other believers. You just, and, and I also think this too is that because we do women's events, you know, as well as I do, Trisha and, and dad, I think from a pastoral point of view, but there's people that come in and they sit on the very back row. Right. And I just think you got to come, like, come, be prepared, sit in the front, be ready, be ready for the spit to hit you <laughs> from the speaker. You know, like, just, yeah. just, there is something about, engaging your body to, to position yourself even physically to hear from the Lord. I think there's something about that. So I recently, just last week, as a matter of fact, just bought a new Bible. I have always used the NLT Life Application Parallel Study Bible. I teach out of that Bible. I read out of that Bible. It's my favorite Bible on the planet, I think, because the English is so easy to understand with the New Living Translation. Um, and then it gives context notes, like what is happening actually in real time, and then life application notes. I just love it. That's what I've always told everybody to get. But last week, I bought a brand new Bible, and I bought the Amplified, and Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. There's not intensive notes of the Bible, I think, because the pages are too full with like the actual language being expounded on. Yes. But it has, do you have a favorite version of the Bible that you just, that you love? To your point, I like the life application. It's always the one I try to get folks to, especially new Christians who want to understand, I'm reading this, but what does it mean? Right. Because the footnotes are like floodlights on a house. It illuminates the text. Also, I like the Amplify because it's amplifying the Greek, especially in the New Testament. It amplifies the nuance and the shades of meaning in the Greek language. And so you get a whole different flavor and taste of the scripture when you are reading the Amplified New Testament. The Amplified is amazing. Like for instance, mm-hmm. in the Amplified, it'll talk about like the Holy Spirit. And then it puts in parentheses, the comforter, the strengthener, 
the one who stands by you. Do you know what I mean? There's right. like five, and it just gives a deeper, like when you talk about that, you'll read in a regular Bible, it says the peace of God. Well, then in the Amplified, it says that the peace that surpre- you know, surpasses all understanding, wholeness, perfectness, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just this. And I thought, no, I want that. I don't mm-hmm. want just peace. I want the peace that the Bible's actually talking about. Yes. So the Amplified is my my new favorite jam right now, and I mm-hmm. love it. Well, one of the words they expound on in the Amplified, because I had that in college, was blessed. And I will never forget to this day, blessed, happy, fortunate to be envied. That's so right. blessed means happy, fortunate, and to be envied. It's like, dang, okay. Well, you know what is so interesting about this? We're totally chasing a rabbit here, but this is what's so interesting is that there's so much out there that says that God does not care about your happiness. He cares about your holiness. And I have heard that by people who are very well-meaning forever. But if you look at the actual language, when you see the word blessed and understand in the in the Hebrew or in the Greek language, that includes happy. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's not a matter of happy based on your happenings that that change around you and that there are very unhappy things that would make you unhappy, you know, but it's a steadfastness that it's okay to be happy. God wants us to be happy in him. And and when we pursue the things of God, happiness is often a byproduct of those things. And I think when I am holy, when I am operating in holiness and pursuing, I'm happier. I'm way happier than I am when I'm not. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? So exactly. I just think it's interesting that getting to the, I love original language. It changes everything. Mm-hmm. But go ahead, Trisha, what do you got? Do you have something in your Oh, hands? I have the New Believers Bible. Mm-hmm. I've been checking this out um, lately and it's just very concise. It's the New Testament, but it's for new believers, first steps for new Christians. And it has a little bit of commentary, not a lot. It is in the New Living Translation. And if you're starting out with the Lord and you, you want a little extra, but not too much extra, um, this is just the New Testament with some great, little notation on the side for you to start learning how to handle your Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's by Greg Laurie. Yes. Doesn't he put that out? Mm-hmm. And it's $7. Yeah. That's amazing. $7 paperback. on Amazon or on in most bookstores. So that's why I like it. It's paperback. And, and it's that just, new living translation. It is. It's just an easy, hey, Dad, let's mm-hmm. have a conversation really quick because mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about, this is just an interesting thing to me, but mm-hmm. a lot of people only read certain versions because sure. they're like, you know, Everything this is the else. holiest version. This is the holiest version. King James, right? Uh-huh. It's the King James version. And then all of a sudden, I'm reading the NLT, and they're like, mm, that's not as good as ESV. You need mm-hmm. to be reading the ESV. You need to be reading. And so what do you think about, because you have handed out, I know that you and I have had these conversations, sure. but there's actually a history to the language right. of the different interpretations and, and uh, versions of the Bible. Can you touch on that just very briefly? Very briefly. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's <laughs> a handout to it if you want it in your yeah. local. Well, the American Bible Society has put out a chart of the development of the English Bible from the Hebrew of the old and the Greek of the new. And prior to 1611, going all the way back to, of course, first century and second century and the writings of the New Testament, uh, what you have is every generation, it seems that a new translation is made based on the Hebrew and the Greek of the whole Old and New Testament in order to make it understandable to that current generation when it comes to 1611, the King James English, which I cut my teeth on before I, when I came to Saving Faith and I started reading the Bible, it's the only Bible I had. So I started reading that, but I didn't understand the these and the thous and, and the nuances of King James English. And so as then as years moved on uh, in my own generation, uh, and then used to have other translations, and they're coming out with uh, word studies that are current or contemporary to our culture that go back to the original language. 
one of the classic verses, I think, to illustrate this point, because, and, and I love the KJV, and then there's other translations as well, but the point is that the uh, this one example where Peter says to wives, if uh, your husbands are not one over, uh, let them be one over by your chaste conversation. That's the King James English. And uh, and now, it, conversation in, in 2023 is, is, what's that mean? That means what we're doing here. We're having a conversation. It's back and forth, dialogue. But in 1611, the word conversation meant behavior. Oh, interesting. So if you look at language, I mean, so when a new translation comes out, they're trying to go back to the, again, the Greek and the Hebrew of the first century or before that for, for Hebrew and find out what is the most, the closest English, in, in our case, our English word, contemporary English word that would capture that Greek or that Hebrew sense. You see, so in these translators, isn't just one man writing it down for his own opinion, kind of like Kenneth Taylor did with Living Bible. And that's, I'm not busting that. I'm just saying that that was him. But it's a team of scholars who know the original languages and are trying to find language that's contemporary that best fits the Greek and the Hebrew. One of the things, when I saw this, when I first started studying the different interpretations and the different versions, not interpretations, but the different versions, right. translations is mm -hmm. probably a better word. Um, I remember reading a book on my first trip to Israel. And it was, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was mind-boggling because it talked about how Jesus was actually, and Joseph was not a carpenter. That is the word that they used. They they could, when, when, the, when the, uh, the text was first being written, that was the closest thing that they could use to identify what they did. But Jesus, and in the land that he was at, he wasn't a carpenter. He worked with stones. Mm -hmm. He worked with rocks. I've heard that, and I wasn't sure if that was an accurate— It like, is. I haven't been able to fact check that. Yeah, that so, so cool. the funny thing is that even when you go to Israel, you'll see they had—even when, when they were building temples and building, they would have to ship in trees— they would have to ship in all these things. Now, now they have more trees, but it's a desert. It's the Middle East. It's the Middle East. They didn't have all this wood, all this trees that all of a sudden we think that he's a carpenter building all. He worked with stone. And in fact, when we went to Bethlehem, we got to tour um, like a what they said what would have been a natural uh, Bethlehem or Nazareth, I'm sorry. No, I guess it was Bethlehem. But anyway, we would go through and they had actors portraying the different scenes. So like a shepherd and you could ask a shepherd questions. And then we, we came upon Joseph's uh, like where he worked, and so I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna see what he knows, you know, because he he's there, he works there, and I said, hey Joe, of course it's just since I'm an actor, <laughs> I said let me ask you a question. I said, are you a carpenter? And he looks at me and he knew it was a trick question. He goes, I work with stones. Mm -hmm. I've always worked with stones. Wow. And so I'm like, that's incredible. I did not expect that. I know my mind was blown by that. But 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 the point is is that the carpenter was the word that they could best describe what was happening versus working with stones or rocks and that sort of thing. So it's interesting to me. Yeah, it's interesting when you think of it in that context to retrofit that to see that he's the stumbling stone. In the cornerstone. The cornerstone. Think about stone. how much it has to do with stones. Right. Yes, uh -huh. you'll see it. Once yeah. you know it, and the true then foundation you see it. That's such Jesus. cool. It's just huh? an interesting... It's an interesting position. If you take that with that new information, you think, well, that has a way of refocusing on other scriptures and views them a different light. Yes. So whether you come out on the carpenter side or whether you come out on the stone side, we are living stones, Peter says. Right. It's all very— Upon uh, this rock, yeah, I will build my church. Yeah, so I mean, there's just like, a lot of different uh -huh. now you know. nuances oh. there mm -hmm. that shades and shifts the, the, uh, the discussion. But yeah.
That This also, I mean, this is just a side conversation also, but there are books out there that talk about how you read the Bible. We read the Bible, no matter which translation you're looking at, through a American mindset. Mm-hmm. And we keep trying to make these things work in an American 2023 mindset, but it was written thousands of years ago in mm-hmm. a Jewish or you know, Hebrew land, Middle East, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. um, and when you start thinking, when you're reading it in actual context, it changes. It changes. I have a plug for it. another book. I've been reading a book uh, over the summer called Reading the Word Th- Through Western Eyes. And That's, it yes. does that exact thing. It's like, this is really... It goes without saying. Like if I say, wow, you know, you blew that out of the water. You didn't really blow that out of the water. I know what that means. It goes without saying. And so sometimes there are phrases in the Bible that they wrote at that time that they didn't have to be labor explaining because they would the phrase mm-hmm. explained it all. So that that book, uh, Reading the Word Through Western Eyes, kind of explains some of those nuances. It, these are fantastic resources. The other, the next question that I want to lead this into, though, mm-hmm. is when, when knowing that we're reading the Bible, an ancient book, right? These This ancient text that is living and active. As we are growing in our understanding of a relationship with the Lord and being discipled and becoming better Christ followers, what is how do we apply God's Word? What does it look like? How would you explain to somebody as a new believer, this is how you apply the Word of God to your life? It's hmm, a great question. For At the risk of looking like I'm dodging the question, I would almost ask to ask the what is the context he's asking the question. Is he asking about a marriage situation? Is he asking about a conversation? He's having communication problems with his wife. Is he having a problem with his children? Is he having or difficulty with an in-law or an employment issue? In other words, when you're saying, how do I apply God's word? I'll say, well, what's the situation that you're describing? So describe for me your situation. And then what I would try to do is find biblical points of reference that shed light the Bible does not uh, explain everything that we do, but it gives broad principles. And when you look at the principles of Scripture that apply, then you can bring them to bear on that situation. Someone says, "Well, I don't know the Bible. It's a big book. You know, how do you how do you read the Bible from front to cover back? Do you, you wait till it comes out as a movie? I mean, how's it work?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, if you're just starting out, you can go like one gentleman pointed out to me yesterday. Another conversation. He said, I can go to the back of my Bible and find words listed, and I can sometimes find." you know, a word that applies to the situation I'm facing. I said, yes. And you can also Google. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can That's Google good. the question like, what does the Bible say about fill in the blank? Just Google the question and then you'll have all kinds of resources that will pop up. So it's not so much that you have to know your Bible, which I do encourage, but if you know how to Google, you can Google the question and that will take you to a Bible verse that will give light and insight to the particular question that you're wanting insight on to know how to do X, Y, or Z. So now that you're talking about, you know, knowing the word, praying, that kind of thing, for new believers, you also include tithing. Can you expound why you think it's important just to give or start a giving lifestyle? And what does that look like for a new believer, especially if it's a— maybe a foreign concept? Certainly. I completely—people think, oh, the church wants is your money. And so that's why they react negatively often to that. And I'll say, well, I said, first of all, the way the world thinks in our BC days, it was you get all you can, you can all you can, and then you poison the rest. Mm. And that's kind of how we're raised in, in the DNA. We're not necessarily raised to be generous. 
And yet God's DNA, his DNA in us by his spirit is generosity. For God so loved, he gave. It's just part of God's nature. So now that his nature lives in us, He want, it, we, we have to work against giving once we come to faith because he is just wants us to be givers. Now, I've known people in my past who gave away a lot and abandoned their family. Mm. And they thought, and their family was bitter against God in the church because of the dad in this situation I'm thinking of just gave it all away thinking he's demonstrating generosity. Well, that was the truth out of balance. Mm. All truth needs to be in balance. And uh, sometimes people think, well, if I hit this one gift key, uh, hit the key on the piano of giving, hit that same key, it's like, okay, it's a B plus or B flat or whatever. I keep hitting that. Well, there's lots of other keys on the keyboard. So when it comes, that's why I teach a course called Mastering Your Personal Finances, a little plug in here for that, in the, in, after the first of the year, March generally. And people say, why don't you teach that in, in like October, November? I said, well, because nobody's listening. Uh, when the bills come due, that's when they start listening. But I teach them all a six-week course on how to master their personal finances, not about investments, not a 401ks and IRAs and Roths. They can talk to a financial advisor about that. But I want to teach them how to get out of debt and stay out of debt. And a lot of it mostly is credit debt. But how does tithing, to your point, fit into that? By putting God first, this is the point, you put God first, 10%. I mean, people think that's the attic of giving. It's really the basement. But by doing that, you're telling God, God, I'm trusting you. You're my source, not my job, not my in-laws, not my fill-in-the-blank. You are my source. I'm looking to you to meet my needs. And God promises to do that. He even says, test me in this. I will. You, the God tells us other places, don't test them. But in this case, he says, this is where I want you to test me. Something practical and measurable, money. And I will pour out a blessing for you that you can't hold. Mm. And so to the degree that one believes God, not to believe in God, but believe God and believe what he says, and I'm going to do this, God can make the 90% go further than the 100% could. God's the only That's one I know so that can good. hammer nickels on a manhole covers. That is so good. So it's, I feel like you're saying it's beyond giving to your church. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually in Malachi, I mean, because people say to me, well, it's just in the Old Testament. No, in the old and new, in the New Testament as well, because Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he says, you tithe your mint, cumin, and anise, which are your spices. Like you got 10 spices, you give one to God. He says, this ought, to, but you omit the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy. These ought you to have done, justice and mercy, and not to have left the other undone. You see what I'm saying? So he included the tithing, but don't keep their balance in all of this. And uh, so the, the point is that you can't outgive God. And people say, well, we can give less. I said, would you give less under grace than you gave under law? The law mm-hmm. only said 10%. Well, grace is everything's God's. So once you, of course, I, the material I teach is a combination of Dave Ramsey, Ron Blue, and Mary Burkett. But it's about how to, again, how to see this in the context of the whole picture and how to see God do a work in your life. If, do I have time for one quick story? Absolutely. Very quick story. Yeah. So I had a situation where a couple came to me, and they were in financial trouble, and uh, they wanted me to see if I could help them. I said, sure, sit down. So I came in. They laid all their bills out, and I laid out a budget book. Now, you can do Quicken online. Like Some people are good with that. Other people need the old-school book in front of them from Office Max. So I had a dome budget book at that point. I said, let's walk through this. And we start plugging in the what you have to have, which are you have to have fixed expenses. These things, like your mortgage, that's fixed expense. Utilities, it's a fixed expense. Uh, going to the movies is a variable. You see those sort of things. So we plugged it all in, and the giving or the contribution piece is at the bottom of this printed budget. So we got to the contribution. They said, we can't afford to tithe. And and I had seen their credit debt, and I said, I looked at them and called them by name. I said, you can't afford not to tithe. Mm. If God doesn't come through for you, you're toast. And you can see this. And they said, okay. I said, so let's do minimum payments on your credit debt over here and put God first 
10% of your total income. And let's just do this for one week, one week. And I want you to come back in a week and let's see where you are. We'll, I'll walk through this week by week as you, now you have to enter your debt every week. Every time you spend a dime, you got to put it in the book. Otherwise you'll lose track of where your money's going. You got to manage it. So uh, they also had all these credit cards on the desk. And so I took the credit cards and I pulled them towards me and they came out of their chairs. I was like taking them off their heroin or something, right? And I, I, yeah. just, and I said, well, I said, I, th- these are in the top drawer and you can get them anytime you want. But I said, your default position is always go to credit. I said, you, you have to stop. You can't, there's a maximum. You cannot borrow your way out of debt. And the, oh, first rule so of hole, and the first rule of hole digging is when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. So any case, so one week passed and they, they did what they were going to do. And they plugged all the numbers in and she was into crafts and she made a comment to me. He had a regular job, paid once a week. She had a craft job and she said, I had this strange thing happen this week. I had people start asking me for work and I just out of the woodwork. I said, well, that's cool. Well, make sure you enter any money comes in, put it in your budget book because do it in pencil. Don't do it in ink because it's going to change week to week. Move your numbers around as the money comes in, put it into your, towards your bills, towards your credit debt. The second week, same thing. More, more money came in. By the end of the month, they had already started for the month. They had already started coming, turning from going down to coming up out wow. of a hole. And this was going on for three months. And they were at three months, they couldn't believe the new resources God was bringing into their lives as they were coming out of this. Now, <laughs> unfortunately, at the end of three months, the husband said, I like my way better than Dave's way. And so he took the cards and they went off the cliff financially. Mm. Oh, no. But, uh, that, but it, God loves to prove his reality in our lives. And money is a measurable item, which he does it. I had one gal at college, Jane, you would know her if I mentioned her name, from the church where I pastored for years. And uh, I taught this material at our church at, at that time. And she said, well, those are just preacher stories, the things I was telling what God had done in our lives. Because our stories, Terry's and my stories, because like, it took us three years to get in debt and 10 years to get out of the debt that we were in. And so uh, she said, those are just preacher stories. I said, I'll tell you what, do you plan on getting a job at uh, the college you're going to up in Missouri? She said, yeah. I said, all right, here's the deal. When you get your job, I'll make a deal with it. You you tithe at the church. I think you ought to pay for your food at the restaurant where you're fed. So you tithe. Don't send it back here. You tithe to that church. And by Christmas, you come back. And if you haven't seen God work in your life in this area of finances of practical needs, you come back and tell me in, August, in Christmas. And I will use you as the example of how this doesn't work. So she said, fine. We shook hands. She left. I completely forgot about it, frankly. Christmas comes around. I'm walking to the hall of one of our buildings, and she's coming in from her Christmas vacation from the school. And she sees me. She says, oh, I'm calling me out. I said, Brother Dave. She said, uh, so good to see you. Her face just lit up. And I said, hey, calling her by name. How are you? She said, I have something to tell you. Now, in that nanosecond, God brought that conversation back. Oh. I'd for, you know, in that nano, I remembered. So, so I kept a straight face. I said, what's that? She said, well, I got this job, and I started tithing, and God just provided. I couldn't believe it. And so I said, deadpan expression, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Mm-hmm. Oh, what, do you, what do you mean? I said, well, you were going to be my first example of how it doesn't work. Now I can't use you as that example. <laughs> oh, brother <laughs> Dave. <laughs> True That's story. Funny. True story. I think what we're going to do um, that we have, and I know that our listeners can't see this, but we have a couple more pages of going even deeper in this conversation of how to deal with adversity, how to deal with toxic uh, waste that takes place and that re, you know resides in our brains. I would like to bring him back to, to continue this conversation on on our whole lives being changed by Christ. Um, so if that's okay with you, would you come Absolutely. back? We'll do like a part back. one and part two. I'll come back. It'll be great. Um, but I want to close this with one one last question. One of the things that you talk about when you are leading discipleship groups and you are um, 
you know, leading people to saving faith and encouraging people, you really encourage community in a faith-based uh, environment. Why is that so important? Great question. Uh, God did not make us, uh, to use an old analogy, Lone Ranger Christians. Now, there's times you have to go by your own self because you're in a pagan environment or hostile environment. But the analogy I used, even with a gentleman this week, was that in my growing up years in Boston, we had a real fireplace. And I can remember my dad putting fire, logs on the fire, and they would pop. You know, that's just, I don't mean, you know, they, they would jump out. The embers would jump out on the hearth. And then he'd put the screen up. And then, uh, but if he didn't leave the screen up and they popped, it would come out on the carpet, of course, burn the carpet, or it would stay hot on the uh, hearth. And he would say to me, don't touch them, they're hot. I said, okay, Dad. But if I washed them long enough, they would go cold. Now, what's the point? The point is that we derive, like that ember, drive our heat from the collective whole. If you put the ember back in, it would remain hot. And by itself, it'll be hot. But if it stays away from the collective whole long enough, it will go cold. And so if we separate ourselves from the body of Christ long enough, it diminishes the fire and the passion in our own lives. That's why God has set it up that we connect with each other each week. That's a, a Sabbath Sunday. Not Sabbath, there's, I'm, I'm saying Sabbath Sunday. I'll just say that. That when you come to worship, if you're physically able and spiritually inclined, it has a real refiring up your life and reigniting the passion and uh, keeps your focus. Now, a daily quiet time helps to do that as well. But corporately, like the fire, we need to be together with other believers. I can tell you, as the pastor of a church, I've gone and I've had an attitude and I go to worship, and I change. It changes me, and I'm the guy preaching, right? So God has used the music. He has used the other people. He has used the door greeter to help me get an attitude check and then to get recalibrated and reignited in my faith and my passion for Christ. So He just that's how we're wired. He just wired us for community. Well, Dave, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your practical wisdom, for sharing your spiritual wisdom, and we are excited to have you back to continue this conversation at True North Podcast. Thank you for spending your time with us today, friends. Be sure to check us out at northroadchurch.com to stay updated on all kinds of events and be sure to subscribe to us on all major podcasting sites. And join us next week as we continue the conversation on True North.